Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, host of the RouterFlex podcast and founder and CEO of our day job recruiting firm, RouterFlex. We hope you enjoy this episode. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the podcast for updates and news. Finally, if you haven't already, check out the series of books we've published on hiring, interviewing, and overall career advice titled The RouterFlex Guide, available on Amazon. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Most homeowners don't have the time or expertise to properly take care of their home, which causes costly issues to arise. That's where Cura Home Maintenance comes in. We're a full-service, routine maintenance company that was developed by a certified home inspector. Each quarter, we service our clients' homes following manufacturer's recommendations to properly maintain all the necessary appliances. We provide the materials and expertise to prolong the life of your property, creating a healthy and efficient environment for your family. From top to bottom, we'll maintain and service your home. To get started, we have a property inspection to determine what needs to be maintained, and a maintenance plan is created based on your preferences. From refrigerator coils to filters, vents, and drains, we do it all, and we do it well. Contact us today for your free routine maintenance inspection and never worry about your maintenance again. All right. You ready to rock and roll? Steve, I was born ready. Let's do it. <laughs> Dave McIlvaney on the RiderFlex podcast. Hello, Dave. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. It's uh, a pleasure to join you. Are you in Durango or are you traveling? You somewhere else? Fortunately, today in Durango. Yeah, we've had some travel to... Uh, Iceland and to uh, Florida, and we've been on the road a lot lately, but back in town. Glad to be here. Are you between, like, are you North Durango? Uh, Whereabouts? Because it it gets, south of Durango gets uglier fast, but north of Durango is pretty fast, right? (laughs) We're pretty much right in town. And we kind of live our life between town and the mountain, you know, Purgatory is uh, our ski area, and I, you know, everybody has different feelings about the, the snow falling. Some people hate it when it gets cold and dream of retirement someplace warm. I can't imagine a year without the snow falling and uh, getting out and skiing. That's one of our favorite family practices. We're out every Saturday and uh, occasionally on Sunday. So that's, that's wonderful. I am a huge outdoor camping mountain guy. I go probably 15, 20 times a year, either in my Jeep solo or when my wife goes, we'll, we'll take the RV because she, she prefers not to uh, uh, be without her, her toilet seat. But uh, I'm a big mountain guy. I, unfortunately, I live up, I live closer to Fort Collins. So I go Northwest usually uh, and then closer to the Wyoming border just because traffic and it's easier. Uh, however, where you're at is, absolutely beautiful more beautiful and that's where i would go if i didn't have to go six hours to get there i mean this is a classic weekend this last weekend um everybody wants to sleep in and i'm usually an early riser so i hopped on my motorcycle went up to the engineer mountain trailhead because there's about a mile two miles in there's a place where we love to pick mushrooms and chanterelles last year were just unbelievable so we thought maybe we'd do that on sunday I was just checking it out, um, got a motorcycle ride in, got a trail run in and out, nothing there, totally skunked. 
and then just kept going on the motorcycle north of Silverton. If you've spent any time in a Jeep, these are some of the best Jeep roads around north yes. of Silverton. So we got to pound some of that on, on uh, uh, well, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Lights go from, from the precipitation we've been getting up on the, on, up on the peaks, leaves yes. beginning to change, crispness in the air. It was, Steve, it was perfect. It's absolutely my favorite. By the way, for the listeners, we're recording this on September 19, 2023. It is that what I call the Super Bowl moment time for the mountains for me because the bugs are pretty much gone, but the snow hasn't hit yet. Some of the leaves are starting to change. Just like you said, that little hint in the air, it's like right now is the moment, right? <laughs> uh so you tell me about your family uh wife kids uh, tell me what's going on there if you don't mind sharing sure uh married for coming up on 24 years and we've got four kids uh, teenagers getting one of them getting ready to go to college on down to a, a nine-year-old um we've raised them here in colorado and our clients are all over the country so we do travel quite a bit uh, for okay. business and uh, probably 25,000 clients around the country. And, you know, so to spend time with them on the road is, is a lot of fun. They've been to every zoo in every city in the country, practically. So that's great. Um, make sure we stay together when we're, when we're on the road. 24 years married. Hell, you look pretty young. I mean, what would you get married when you were 18? I mean, geez. <laughs> be, I'm coming up on 50. Coming up on, I'll be 49 wow. this year. Wow. Okay. Let me zoom in. You don't look 50. You look pretty good, man. You, you must be, are you, uh, you look like you're in great shape. What's your, what's your exercise routine? Walk us through that. What are you doing there? The last decade of, I've done a lot of triathlons. I'll do two or three a year. Um, typically half Ironmans and they keep me focused. They keep me definitely disciplined and it's not the kind of, I had to choose a distance that I couldn't do off the couch. Um, <laughs> So, so that it, it forces the daily discipline. Um, this year is going to be a little bit different. I'm, I'm hanging up the cleats for a little bit. Um, my boys asked if I'd lift weights with them. And, you know, I've got a graduating senior and uh, sophomore. And, you know, what, what am I doing out running around and being on a bike on the weekend when my boys are like, hey, dad, would you spend time with us? And would you lift weights? Show us how. <laughs> like, well, I mean, okay. Hey, yeah. So okay. Yeah. That's going to be my new routine. I don't spend a lot of time in the gym, but that's about to change. If your teenagers say, dad, will you spend time with us? Like, yeah, you better grab that because that, that's not, that's not normal. <laughs> that must speak to your relationship with your, your boys or your kids. I mean, yeah, that's special because uh, you don't get most of the time when they're that age, they're trying to go the opposite direction wherever you're at. <laughs> yeah. There's ebbs and flows in every relationship. And I mean, they're great kids. Um, and, and some days are amazing and some days are amazingly hard. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the focus on family culture has been really critical for my wife and I, um, so much so that back in 2017, I, I wrote a book on it and, you know, we've been in the financial services industry for 50 years and it just seems like there's, yeah, it's our family business. Um, so not just me, I didn't start when I was, you know, in utero, um, <laughs> second generation family business. Yes. So the, the. What seems to be missing is the the, the proper curation of, of family life and culture. Totally. And so little decisions that add up to, to sort of the major themes. And I'll give you an example. Guys night on Thursday is, you know, me and the three boys this last week, we were 
playing Texas Hold'em with with you know a gazillion nickels, and we just had a great time. So to to me, it's if if we can laugh together, if we can adventure together, if we can travel together, if we can feast together, then there's something that's happened to our hearts that um, frankly is far more important than how much money I make and and leaves of this caboodle of kids. I mean, I, I would love to do that. Um, but I just, I think more broadly defining legacy is important and seeing that the resources that we manage aren't just physical, tangible, but there's some intangibles that have to be factored in too. So uh, yeah, the, the, I mean, you know, everybody gets to choose how they engage in relationship. And I've got four chiefs who can all, you know, tell me to go pound stand. They have no interest or whatever, but thus far, there's reasonable responsiveness and engagement relationship, which I'm super, super happy about. That's wonderful. Tell me, uh, so second generation family business, let's, let's learn about mom, dad, uh, if you don't mind, and maybe any siblings. Yeah. So family of four kids. Um, I'm the only one in the family that had an interest in the business. I had a brother that moved to Indonesia to surf and play and start little micro entrepreneurial ventures. Um, a sister who, um, uh, remarkably has had nine kids and just has an amazing family out in Alabama, uh, a wow. younger sister who's single living in Southern California and an awesome human being. She's my favorite running partner in the world. And um, yeah, so the four of us were raised in Denver and my, my dad it worked for Betcher and company, which is also kind of a Denver company and you know works as a stockbroker they did a lot of municipal bond underwriting and what had his attention in the late 60s and early 70s was this issue very similar to now of massive government spending by the way we passed 33 trillion in government debt this week um and you know the the inflationary expectations that the market began to see and and so you know there's better you know, selling a lot of muni bonds, bonds have got some vulnerability with, with inflation and the potential for high, higher rates. Okay. And there was really no way to hedge that risk because it was illegal to own gold. What year so, was that? What year? Uh, 1968 uh, through about 70. Well, I mean, it was legalized January 1st, 1975. And okay. you know, my dad was a part of a small group, professional group that that worked with Senator Jesse Helm's office to change the legislation, okay. make it possible. So nice. cool. Um, actually, had a first mover advantage in the marketplace because we found wow. a loophole in '72. So we're three years into the bullion business and showing Wall Street firms how to get this done. Of course, they didn't have a, a you know a gold desk, so we were basically like a white label for them. We were, we were a wholesale provider, a gold trading desk for hundreds of Wall Street firms. Now I had a visual, I had a visual of your dad hoarding and hiding real gold and gold in a basement somewhere. And then once he helped it get legal, he brought it out of the basement and took it somewhere. I'm, I'm just joking, but that that's my visual. <laughs> well, what was interesting is, you know, you, you couldn't hoard or hold. We had a two-tier monetary system where in order to maintain credibility with our foreign creditors, gold was still a part of the U.S. monetary system, but that was only for international trade settlement, international mm -hmm. debt settlement. Mm -hmm. um, domestically, you couldn't own it. That allowed them to inflate the currency, and like coming out of the 1930s, you know, we had a massive 
hemorrhaging in the stock market, banking crisis. And, and the argument was, well, we just don't have enough liquidity. Let's print as much money as you can. Nope, full stop. Can't do that as long as you're on a gold standard. That's why ah. they created a two-tier system so that they could inflate domestically, but maintain legitimacy and stability internationally with their foreign creditors. So reputation stayed intact. Um, but is that why, is that why, and I'm, I'm going to ask you some, uh, commoner questions. So you have to excuse my, uh, uh, language and questions. I'm not an expert on the topic. Is that why Nixon, was it right? Am I right? Nixon, uh, eliminated yeah. the gold, eliminated the gold standard. So we could just start printing money whenever we needed it. <laughs> it's a little different. Um, but, but it's a, it's a great question. 1971 was kind of the end of the line. He drew a line in the sand okay. with, you know, like the Bank of France and and other folks that we owed money to internationally. Coming out of World War II, we created a world monetary system, a global monetary system that focused on the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. Who was who was better prepared to do it? You know, Europe had been obliterated. Yep. Uh, pound sterling had been the world's reserve currency prior to this, but they were a you know a shadow of their former selves, right? So we convened all the world central banks and leaders in. Uh, Brighton Woods, New Hampshire, big hotel there. Yeah. And um, we basically said, it's our way or the highway. Yeah. <laughs> and we wrote our own script, wrote ourselves into uh, it. We, we took the lead role. Dollar is, 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 the, is the key currency of the world. Um, and we, we made the case, look, we've got so much gold and we're in such a good position financially. Anytime you want, we owe you money. You just tell us. You want dollars, we'll send them. You want gold, we'll send them. It's the same thing. Our currency is as good as gold. Mm. Well, fast forward to the 1960s and we get through, you know, the guns and butter policies of, of the Johnson administration, like massive fiscal spends. We're at war in Vietnam. We're coming out of that. You know, we're, we're trying to pay for everything for everyone from a social you know, program standpoint. Yep. And our, our, for, our foreign creditors start looking and saying, <laughs> the dollar is not as good as gold. We'll take the gold, please. <laughs> and and so for a long time, it was like this game of poker. It's like, all right, yeah. I told you as good as gold. It is. But we reached a point in 1968 when uh, the U.S. administration wrote to France and said, stop it. If you want to remain a friend of America, you will take greenbacks. <laughs> friend of America was actually in the letter. If you want to remain a friend of America... You'll take so they kept on taking gold instead and and took our hoard from what was close to 27,000 tons down to about eight to 9,000 tons. That's a lot of gold leaving U.S. vaults. Mm, mm. Nixon closed the gold window, separated the U.S. dollar from gold. And now, anytime we owe somebody, we just print the money. We just print the money. What does that mean? Now we're about to go down a rabbit hole. I want to come back to your dad and mom for a second, but one, one more question. What does that really, does that really mean that the dollar isn't worth anything besides what we say it's worth? How do I even wrap my head around that? It's just this paper that we're just printing whenever we want to. Like, how does it have real value? Yeah. I mean, it's worth the paper and ink it's printed on really. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it's it's set up as a Federal Reserve note. So it's yeah. a non-interest bearing note of the Federal Reserve. And the value of any debt instrument, this non-interest bearing note, it is, is tied to the reputation of the institution you're talking about. So if the Fed has a great reputation, the dollar's worth something. 
If the Fed does not have a good reputation, then the dollar's value goes down and it buys less and less. We're watching that happen right now with the Chinese currency and the Japanese currency. Right. Their central banks are losing credibility. Their currencies have been depreciating all year and they're at really critical levels. The U.S. dollar, you could argue, has been abused and U.S. dollar holders abused too, because since the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, 99% of its purchasing power is gone. Mm, wow. Uh, all the more reason uh, people Another should- rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's totally okay, though. It's a fascinating uh, topic, especially for a guy like me that knows a little bit, but not, not much. And I'm assuming most of my listeners are not as educated as you are on the topic, so it'll be fascinating for them too. The, all the more reason to invest in gold and silver, which is, by the way, one of the things you do. <laughs> yes, you know, 1972 is when my parents started the gold brokerage business. We've iterated and changed through time. Uh, we were the first company to put physical metals into an IRA back in the mid 80s. Cool. And, you know, more recently, we have a savings tool called Vaulted, which allows for people if you've got too much in the bank, don't want it in US dollars. You know, you can you can treat that as as ounce allocation. Great way to do it. And by the way, for the listeners, vaulted. I checked out the app. It's it's Android and iPhone, both, right? It's available, Play Store, whatever. Yep. Yeah, um, I, I was looking at the app earlier today. So uh, for those people interested, you can uh, check out the app uh, for sure. Is your mom? Is your mom or dad still with us? Are they gone, or where, where are they? Pastor. They are more than hanging on. Um, are they? In 2008, we started to transition the business, and uh, my dad, a couple of years before that, had had invited me out of the executive committee, and I came back from working at Morgan Stanley in 2003. Good experience. So about three years later, I am on the executive committee. Two years after that, 08, uh, my dad says, look, we're moving to Asia, and uh, you get to manage this beast. So they had been involved with a number of orphanages in okay. you know, Malaysia, uh, gosh, where else? Um, Indonesia, India, um, Myanmar, um, and the Philippines. And so they ended up going to the Philippines. They, they live right next to one of the orphanages that, that they work with. And then they're just there to in, encourage the staff at each of the homes um, bring in best practices from a business and accounting standpoint, just so that there's you know more transparency about you know dollars that come in and dollars go out. And my dad's pretty keen on on helping get those uh, you know homes in into a place where they're self sustaining. So you know, it might be like helping fund a piggery, which then you know is is sort of source of protein or fish farm or hydroponic, you know, gardening, or, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that they've done. The one in the Philippines, actually, most of the expenses are covered from a rice drying business that they started. Oh. And they bring in all the rice from about a 10 square mile area. And rather than having it like out on a patty drying in the sun, it goes into a tumbler. And, you know, so they're like a communal hub because of the rice drying business, but that covers, you know, the kids room and board and it covers their education um all that kind of stuff do they miss the grandkids i'm guessing how's your mom do with that <laughs> no i mean it, it's it it's uh we get to spend a couple of weeks with them a year we usually okay. meet up with them, you know i we've found it's better to vacation with them than for them to come back to colorado where you know there might be who knows 20 50 whoever however many people want to get a piece of their time when they're in town uh, and even if they're staying with us you know we I end see. up 
three dinners and really no time. So we'll travel with them, spend 10 days to two weeks just hanging out and adventuring. And that's been the better, better time spend. Um, that's, given, that's given you know, I think, it is, I think it is hard for them. On the other hand, you can ask yourself the question, if you retire, what is your purpose? And, yes. you know, for you to have an expectation of them, like, you know, sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair, maybe, you know, if they were living in the deep South, shucking pecans or, you know, working for a hole in one on the golf course, they're, they're people of action. They mm. love investing in lives and, you know, they put their four through college and they put another 25 through college after us. And they're just going to keep on cranking on that kind of stuff That's until great. the day they die. That's and, awesome. you know, no regrets, man and woman of action. And it's, it's pretty cool to see. So we miss them. But on the other hand, I look ahead and I say, well, what do I want my life to look like? As yeah. in, do I, do I, how will I define purpose? I think we, all, all of us will define it a little bit differently. Um, but it's a really reasonable question to ask as, as you consider a, a, a you know, long-term exit from a business. What a great point. And I can relate. So I'm 56. All four of our kids are out of the house. I have two granddaughters. And I will tell you from personal experience, and for anybody listening, you definitely go through a, a, an adjustment period. I, I remember when our last child left for school, David, it was for six months. I, I, I was trying to find myself, so to speak. I'm like, I, okay, now, now what? <laughs> now, now what do I do? Right now, now what's my purpose? And I'll never forget, just tell this really quick story. My wife was working late. She wasn't home for whatever reason, reason. And it was a Friday. And earlier that day, I had tried to scramble. I'll never forget this. I was trying to scramble to, to gather happy hour or schedule happy hour with a couple of buddies or whatever. I kept calling people. Nobody was available. Everybody was busy. So I, I couldn't get anything worked out. And my wife wasn't there. And I, I, I will not forget this. I was about 6.45, 7 o'clock. I'm sitting on my couch in my living room. It's quiet. There's nobody home. And all I can hear is the clock ticking. And I'm sitting there. We were talking about bourbon earlier and I had a little glass of bourbon and I will never forget thinking, man, okay, is this it? Like, is this, this now what? Like, this is it. What, what do I do? <laughs> it took me a while, but my wife and I have transitioned now into having hobbies and things that we do and trying to find purpose. But, uh, and I think it's very important to do that. Uh, so I couldn't agree more to find some sort of passion or something you're you're chasing and experiences you're chasing because it's a different life so i can relate i can relate we're now you strike me as the young man that was always on the straight and narrow I, did you ever get in any trouble did you ever venture out at all with rebel i mean were you just like straight a's i'm at the library every day i'm going to church three times a week i, I did you i mean you give us something dave come on give us something <laughs> i ran away when i was 14 Oh, there we go. Okay. That's a and, good one. All um, right. I, I was, I was away from home, you know, including being sent away thereafter uh, <laughs> to, to boys rich for about a year. Ooh. So between wow. running away and drug rehab and uh, the, the boys ranch had in Arkansas. Um, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't, I don't think I was always on the straight and narrow. I think what, <laughs> dawned on me, you know, I, we, we all have pain in our lives and a lot of what happened. So 14 to 16 was an expression of disappointment, pain, anger, um, you know, losing my grandfather unexpectedly, my uh, dad traveling three 
out of four weeks and building our business from from an early uh, sort of stage. So, you know, there there was you know I, I played as as one of the mini mites at uh, DU. You know, we the, we practiced the DU ice arena all the time. I played ice hockey growing up, That's and cool. my dad was the dad who was never there. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I just, there, there was enough going on by the time I was 14 that I was just kind of pissed about life and everything. And, um, you know, but it's an expression when you're angry, it's generally an expression of, of, of pain. True. Um, yep. when, when I came back from Arkansas, um, there was a series of events. I, I put it in chapter one in, in the book, the intentional legacy. Um, and, it it really was the turning point for me, Steve. I, th- I think that as I look back, I had sort of uh, an encounter with forgiveness, um, a grave offense with my dad and mm-hmm. and his willingness to forgive me that really it, it broke my heart, broke me down mm-hmm. and had me asking really questions. Is this really where I want to go? Is this really what I want to do? I think the pendulum swang back pretty hard from sort of libertine to now somebody was probably a little bit more straight laced, but I, I felt like there was years that I had wasted and I just wanted time back. And I, you know, and I, I, it dawned on me, even at a young age, time's going to run out. Yeah. You better, better use what you got. Mm. Was there a, a moment when uh, you were in Arkansas at the, at the school or at, and uh, you're like, Dad, please come get me, please, please. <laughs> or mom, mom, please come get me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this was this was one of those weird things. You know, I, I, the reason I ended up at the at the youth ranch was because, you know, and by the way, I didn't have a, a major drug problem, but my parents didn't know that, so they they sent me to this counseling center and drug rehab, and and uh, you know. I was there for like 45 days and they showed up, we did some group counseling and they had a 27 page contract for me to sign to come home. And I misread the room completely, Steve. I I thought, you know, they want me to come home. There's no way I'm signing this. I'm not going to see my friends in Denver. I'm not going to, you know, all these people, they like shortlisted, no more contact, no more contact. These are the coming home. And I was like, forget it. And I, somehow I thought I had leverage. <laughs> Two days later, I'm on, I'm on a plane to Arkansas. So um, <laughs> that's good stuff. Yeah. That's really good. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you, you sharing that. Well, obviously things worked out, right? Things worked out. You ended up going to school and mm-hmm. getting your degree. And uh, what'd you major in college? I studied philosophy. Okay. And so at that time, you didn't think you were going to go to work, go to work for your dad. I'm, I'm guessing. Absolutely not. No, I had no interest in in the gold business. I had no interest in the investment world. I I had interest in what drove culture and and and, and the values in culture. Um, you know, philosophy for me was kind of a wormhole into all things. It's like you know, opening up a toolbox and for the first time having every tool you can imagine to do every project you could ever imagine. Okay, and and so philosophy is is this set of tools that you get to use in reading the evening news reading um a book on literature you know looking at a biography understanding international relations it's just 
critical thinking. That, that's that's all when you study philosophy, that's all it is, is training and critical thinking. Um, but I, I just I saw the importance of that, not really caring what I was going to do with it. Okay. Of course, about the time you get to your end of your senior year and everybody's, you know, already gotten job offers. And the question is, what are you going to do? You're like, I studied philosophy. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a very good question. What am I going to do next? Um, so I, I went to work at a study center um, just outside of, of Waco, about halfway between Waco and, and Dallas. Okay. And it was a Christian study center where during the summer months they had programs on apologetics and um, aesthetics. So Christianity and the arts. So they had a variety of you know, poets and, and songwriters and um, artists and whatnot come to, to this, you know, week long thing. Anyways, I'm, I'm in the front row and taking notes. Uh, I was working there, but, but, but taking notes at this particular event and this gal is is talking about the influence of postmodernism on contemporary dance and taking notes I'm like this is I mean I'm not even sure I have an interest in this do I have an interest it's kind of fascinating it's way over my head I mean I, I've studied postmodernism but contemporary dance like how does it anyways I end up marrying her like three years later there's 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 a lot of details we could fill in and I'd bore your listeners <laughs> but she studied uh, too studied philosophy and uh, it's, it's been it's been a, a really beautiful life too now were, were you was your faith strong then your your christian-based faith was it strong then or were you a, a, a backslider at that time as they call it and by the way no, I, was, I, was know, I think i think when i when i had that experience of forgiveness from my dad it was the first it was the first time that in my life i could see and understand the value of not getting what I deserved. And, and there was, there was something about, mm. you know, this, mm. the notions of spiritual justice or, or I don't even know. I mean, I'm, I'm not a theologian, so I don't know that I, I have the words for this, but um, in the, in the, in the Christian conception of salvation, you, you are missing something mm. and, 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 and God, puts in that place what you're missing and makes right what was made wrong a long time ago. And I, I, I think, you know, I, I know how to make things wrong. My decisions, I can make a mess of things. And, and the fact that I'm reinvited into relationship with God, um, I just didn't appreciate forgiveness. I didn't appreciate a gift. I didn't appreciate. And, and that's what happened when I was 14, 15, that interaction with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that point forward, I mean, I was intrigued by, strong personalities that made a difference in the world. I remember when I was 15, I, I, I was reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you don't know anything about his life, he's this, he's this amazing Christian pastor who very interestingly was also, um, you know, a, a part of a group that was, was attempting to assassinate Hitler. I mean, you, you've got these contradictions of like, wow. you know, there's the love of God, but there's also the the very clear stand of what evil is and and, and that you should stand against it. Like there's, I, I as a, as a young man, I thought, how how should I see thought and action tied together? And and, and Christianity is one of, of of many ways of bringing about this sort of um, structure, worldview, and with it pointed towards particular actions. 
you know, mm. That, mm. that you're, it's not just a system of belief, but it ultimately drives towards particular actions um, of love and of grace and of forgiveness. Um, anyways, I'm, I'm not, I'm trying to preach here, but it, yeah, I, th I think that I took life a lot more seriously Okay. after the year in Arkansas okay. and after that experience of forgiveness. And I read big books. I mean, from that point forward, it was Bonhoeffer, it was Dostoevsky, it was um, Shakespeare on a voluntary basis, just trying to figure out what, what is, what is, who are we? Right. What is the world we live in? And mm -hmm. so, you know, actually philosophy was a really natural extension for me uh, once I got to college, because now it was more of not just my search, but there was some guidance added to it, which was helpful. I want to ask you this question and we can leave this in or take it out later if you want, but uh, if you don't feel comfortable answering, do you feel like part of the craziness I call it craziness that's going on right now with, with some of the social things happening in the country. Do you feel like some of the anger on social media and craziness is because the country over the last 30, 40 years has slowly drifted away from the faith-based family unit of structure and, and we've just lost a lot of that and and that has fueled the fire of craziness <laughs> i don't know if i'm asking the question properly but i think to some degree we've we've lost touch with reality outside of ourselves mm. and and so when you see world the world through a very subjective lens um it, it can it can be a lens of uh feeling it can be a lens of um you know myopia is 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 where you you're, you're unable to see certain things, but you can see other things very well. We have we have a vision problem as as a nation, and 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 again, I, there's there's just something missing. I think an external reference point, um, something that that does you know give you a sense of what what are values and what is truth and 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 what is fairness. Um, you know, I mean, certainly. We can have a debate about that if we're talking about social issues, but within the context of business, people still want to be treated with ethics. They, they want to be treated with honor. They want to be treated with dignity and respect. What is your basis for all of that? Is it pure pragmatism? Is it, you know, what, why do, what is, do you have a philosophical justification for the way that you treat a client or customer? Treat, treating them with dignity and respect, caring for their needs. Right. Mm -hmm. I do think that there is there is a basis in worldview for those things. And to the degree that you eliminate worldview, and we've been taught through, you know, I, certainly the public schools and, 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 and certainly, you know, uh, secular universities have this notion that there is no room in the public square for private religious concerns. And, and I would say the public square without private religious concerns is a free-for-all because now you do what you want whenever you want. It, it, and I think that's what we're seeing more and more is might makes right. There's power struggles everywhere. Nobody cares about outcomes or, or true justice. All there is, is, is a battle for who has control of the narrative, right? Yes. yes. And 
And, and so that to me is it, we, we are living in a, in a post-truth world. We're living in a world that, that doesn't have these key anchors, worldview anchors. Mm-hmm. When you do that, might makes right. I mean, we, we are, we've moved into the perfect world of, of, of Darwin. I will do what I want to do when I want to do at anyone else's expense, because there is no morality. There is no ethics because we've already established there is no truth. Mm. If you tell me there is no truth, then just acknowledge that the business universe that we have, like, okay, then we should say yes to WorldCom. We should say yes to Enron. We should say yes to any list of, if you can get away with it, go for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what is your justification for operating with ethics? Mm. That is good stuff, my friend. That's good stuff. Uh, really good stuff. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I'm I'm very concerned about, and then we'll get in, get get into the business here. But I, I'm very worried about the control of the narrative from a select group of very powerful organizations, and the ability to to spread whatever information uh, they want. It, it scares the hell out of me, quite frankly. I, I I've I've watched it over the last few years. And as an old, old guy, I'm 56. I tell my boys all the time. I said, man, I, this, this, this is a little bit, I'm worried. <laughs> I'm, the, the amount of control around the flow of information to the human species, that topic will be already is, and will continue to be a, a major, major issue. Um, and, um, and I'm worried about it. So I know we could spend like two hours on just that topic, but <laughs> I mean, in a nutshell, um, you know, the, the, the lead Lord Acton was a, was, was, was the head of the history department at Cambridge university for a bunch of years. And his, his probably most famous quote is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And yep. it, that's that's the issue. It doesn't. I mean, even well-intended people, you could look at the history of the Christian Church and say, at various points, whether it's Catholicism or Orthodoxy or Protestantism, uh, you know, something breaks down. Why does it break down? Well, if someone has the power, all of a sudden there's the, the this this reinforcement and and protection of it, and there's corruption that that, that, that becomes endemic. Didn't start that. Didn't right. start that way. That's right. So, where we started and where we are, two very different things. But at this True. point, there's so much of a, of a grasp for power and, and narrative control is certainly a part of that. Um, I, we, we live in one of the more corrupt periods in, in human history. Um, yeah. But I think that's going back to who's, how the dominoes fell. When you don't have a worldview that governs your decisions, then all, all resorts to, can I get away with it? And, and so, you, I mean, it is just a grab for power. Yeah, totally. No surprise at every level. Yep. Yep. You're absolutely right. Good stuff. All right. Now let's move into, appreciate you sharing all that. So dad says, Hey, or did you call dad or dad's like, Hey, come help me. How did it go? Yeah. uh, 2003, I was working at Morgan Stanley and I was back for 2002, December of 2002, came back for Christmas and and just said, dad, I'm thinking about, you know, what would it look like to, to, to work in the family business? And he had a couple of different businesses at that point. I wasn't very specific as to which one. Okay. And he was kind of dumbfounded because, I mean, I had never expressed an interest in it. It was really good that I went and did something else. And I, I think I would have that expectation today. 
if any of my kids have an interest in the business, great. Not now. Go do something else. Agreed. Yep. In education, get some experience. And if you have interest after that, wonderful. If you don't, great. You, you were supposed to go a different direction anyways. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I came back and, and commuted on a weekly basis. We were living in Southern California okay. and uh, in for the week, back to California for the weekends for about three months. I had to see if I could stand working with my dad. I mean, <laughs> super strong personality. I have four kids. They're all chiefs. My dad and mom had four kids. We're all chiefs. I mean, it's just, it's a problem. It's a problem. Uh, yeah, totally. Totally. I can relate. Interestingly enough, my youngest son is uh, just like me, super type A, super got to be captain of everything or thinks he, you know, the same, right? Chief. Uh, and he wants to work for the family business. So this is just recent. So last week I have partners uh, in the business and I said, look, I said, Spence, here's the deal. I'm not going to call them and say, this is what we're doing. You are going to drive down to Denver on your own and meet with the partners. And you're going to sell this to them without me saying, this is how it's going to go down. And if they all approve, then, then we'll do something because, <laughs> because the whole topic was, I wanted them to meet with, to see if his personality can survive our culture right without he and i killing each other and how we're gonna how are we gonna do this i mean hell he can't even come over for thanksgiving dinner without us arguing about how the plates are going to be set on the table or whatever so <laughs> yeah so it's good but it worked out you so when you tested it you're like okay i can do it we did i mean we we certainly had some consulting and and professional counsel um okay. the 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 guy that had done pre-marriage counseling for my wife and I, a very trusted counselor out in California. Um, my dad and I spent some time working through, you Good. know, what's this look like? You know, we've got two relationships now. It's a father-son relationship. It's also an employee-employer relationship. Mm -hmm. And can you set distinctions and boundaries for those where, where one discussion is clearly one category and one is the other? And it was... I think going in with a proper framework was was helpful. Without a framework, I think we could have really messed things up, and and we might not be on very good terms. Um, but we are we're on we're on excellent terms. And it's twenty years later, right? And you've kept the business going, made it even bigger, and your relationship with the dad is still healthy. Hey, congratulations! <laughs> now, I will say that the transition was made easier by his desire and my mom's desire to be halfway around the world. So yeah. you know, sometimes the business transition gets a little rocky when Gen 1 is looking over Gen 2's soldier, shoulder and, and picking every decision apart and saying, that's not how you do it. That's not how you do it. That's I was very sink or swim. And, and he told me, he said, look, if the business folds, it folds. I, it's not my concern anymore. I don't think you're going to let it. I think you're a smart enough guy. And of course it's like, he knows what motivates me. I'm, I am, I will not fail. Right. Just, <laughs> he, just, he had, he, he gave me, he gave me enough latitude um, to fail, which was a means to success. That's great. Yeah. You're absolutely right. One of the biggest mistakes the first generation can make is too much hovering, too much vulture seagull management uh, flying around, coming into the office too much, getting in the way of second generation. It just makes it messy. I mean, be there as, as an advisor, as a mentor, sure. Uh, quarterly board meetings, whatever. But um, 
just getting in the way all the time, just going to make it messy. So it's great. That's great that he he had that wisdom and he also moved off. Let's do this. Let's let's do a, just a, an overview here of McIlvaney Financial Group. And by the way, it's McIlvaney.com, McIlvaney Financial Group. And I also just want to go back to the listeners uh, and, and mention this, the intentional legacy available on Amazon, hardcover or audiobook. By the way, is it your voice? It is. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. You got the voice for it. So that's great. I'm glad you told me that. I would have given you a heck if, if you just had somebody else had recorded it because you got you the know, radio. It was an amazing experience. I, I, I went down to this recording studio in Austin, Texas, and this guy who'd played guitar with, you know, a dozen rock bands through the years. Um, we go into his studio and he records as we are. I mean, he edits as we record oh. and we're finished. It's done. Oh, really? Oh, wow. So it wasn't a painful process. Okay, that's cool. It, but I mean, it took a couple of days. So that part did get painful. Your voice gets a little tired. Um, yeah, you know, when we needed a break, he'd bust out his guitar. It was amazing. Really? Absolutely. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Is it available everywhere else too? Amazon only? Um, is it available? Uh, that's, yeah, that's the best place. Or website, davidmackelvaney.com is if you want to order in bulk, you can. Um, and it's discounted through our web, through the, through the David McIlvaney website, McIlvaney.com is the best site to kind of get to know who we are, what we do. You, what you'll find there is access to our asset management company focused on hard assets, uh, all publicly traded companies, but we manage portfolios of stocks, um, focused on real things. So it's global natural resources, precious metals, mining companies, specialty real estate and infrastructure. Those are our four areas of focus. There's also, you know, the pathway to our precious metals brokerage company, 51 years in business, um, 50,000 people, billions of dollars placed with clients all over the country. And, you know, a leader in the industry of, of precious metals IRAs. Um, vaulted, I don't know if we have vaulted presence on, on, on that site or not. But I think if you really want to get to know us, go to the news and information section, because that that really is how you get to know how we think about things. I've done a weekly podcast since uh, March of 2008. We're in our 16th year of of doing a weekly podcast and wow. market related. Um, you know, certainly we're interested in psychology, international relations, public policy. It's it's not just sort of facts and figures relating to this day's you know opening and closing stats on the Dow, S and P, and Nasdaq. Um, we're interested in the ideas and the context of what's driving the market. Um, really helpful tool if, if you're if you're looking for perspective. McIlvaney um, McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, right? Is that now? What's the is that the name of the show? McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. That's right. That's right. Okay. okay, and that channel, the channel on YouTube is McIlvaney Financial, I think, or is there a different channel for the podcast? Yeah, if you want to go YouTube, you can. If you want to listen to the podcast on iTunes or you know other places you listen to podcasts, it's available just about everywhere. Okay. Well, hey, you got uh, there's quite a few subscribers. What, I mean, great job. And and by the way, you were doing podcasting before it was cool. <laughs> before it was called podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Very that good. Didn't exist 16 years ago. I can't believe you've been doing it for 16 years. How many times have somebody called you and said, "Yeah, I'm going to start my own podcast," and you're like, "Okay, yeah, let me know," because it takes a lot of work and time for you to keep it up that long. Congratulations. It's it's 15 or 20 hours a week. I mean, yes. a lot, it's also dense content and it's and it's fresh content every week. 
Um, a lot of people have this concept of I want to create a podcast. I'll have six or eight set, uh, you know, uh, episodes, and and they're kind of shelf pieces. Ours is just modeled differently, and you know, we're trying to solve problems when we don't have the the answers to those problems. We'll reach out to professionals who we th- we think do. That could be a central banker from the European Central Bank, an academic from UC California Berkeley. Um, you know, a political leader here in the U.S. or or in Western or Eastern Europe. We have a pretty wide range of commentary guests, and it's basically we've taken it as far as we can. Now we have to have someone to talk to about this particular issue, and they've written three books on it. They join us, and we 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 kind of unpack the the big problems. Okay, very good. Who, who's your typical client? Your targeted client? Well, how would you describe them? The typical client is 40 to 60. Okay. Um, knows something about how the world works. Um, educated, whether that's college educated or not, doesn't matter. They're curious. Okay. And um, interested in interested in the truth. They, 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 you know, mainstream media would probably be a disappointment for them. They'd be like, yeah, that's great. Facts and figures, but give me analysis. I don't, I don't need the same loop over and over again. Why don't you bring on somebody that's going to bring some insight? Um, and that's that's how we're we're sort of sympathetic. Um, that's that's where we connect, at least through the podcast. Net worth, uh, average net worth, like what? Who you know? Do they have to be rich to be a client? I mean, so talk to me about that. And define rich. I guess that's a vague. I mean, I, I guess we need a definition around that. But they got to have a little bit of cash. Yeah, we've we've cre- we've created a number of different access points. For instance, the vaulted program. Um, you know, that's the vaulted.com or you go to the app store, you can buy and sell gold and silver and, and you're buying any dollar amount within a kilo bar or a thousand ounce bar, you're getting the economy of scale. But if you wanted to have five bucks in silver and five bucks in gold, that's fine. You can do that. And, and you don't have to buy the entire bar, you know, $60,000 bar or, you know, $30,000 bar, whatever the price and, and of, of those bar may be be at a given time. I, I like the idea of democratizing access to metals and there being a great access point for that for everyone. Okay. Right? So we've got folks on the vaulted platform that have, you know, $5 million, $10 million in the program and folks that have 20 bucks. And okay. I like know. both. Good That's the know. vaulted program. Typically, if somebody's doing a the precious metals IRA with us, they'll have 20, 30 grand at, at least. Okay. And, you know, not uncommon for us to see a, you know, half million or million dollar, you know, 401k rollover um, in, in, in that venue. We're Very just good. not, we, we care about taking care of people and really don't care, you know, how polished your shoes are. Can you, um, can you tell us how big your fund is that you manage or is that something you can share? I don't know. So it just depends on on the kind of what which business you're talking about. Um, yeah, no, right. Yeah. In, in IRA assets with within um, just the physical precious metals, you know, call it five hundred million dollars. Okay. Uh, in funds that we've delivered to clients um, in the fifty years we've been in business, probably another four and a half billion dollars. Okay. Um, in 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 money that we manage in uh, in our hard asset fund, the publicly traded fund. Hundred million dollars. Okay. Um, okay. You know, so it just depends on what product. Mm, very good. Here's a here's a couple of uh, funny questions here towards as we wrap up. If I buy a thirty thousand dollar bar, 
where is my bar of gold? Where where is it physically? Well, you can do a couple of things. Our bread and butter business is delivery because people like it in their hand. Oh, uh, oh, okay. So Didn't know that. that oh. Majority of our business, people take delivery of the product. That's not the case if it's an IRA. If it's an, in an IRA, then it's stored at a depository and it's managed by a trust company. That's what the IRS requires. Treasury Department, if you're going to have an IRA, you got to play by the rules, whether it's a stock account or or precious metals. How would um, I insure? How would I insure my thirty thousand dollar bar? How do I? How do I talk to my homeowners insurance about what? How does that even work? Yeah, you could you could add that to a list of assets that oh. that are at your home. Okay. Yeah. If wow. you've got art, it's it's on the list. You I know, see. You have pictures of your art, and 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 you'd have it listed okay. as an it's insured. How about that? Down. How about uh, that? Nice thing about gold is it's not destroyed. If your house burned down, I mean, if it's stolen, clearly, but. Um, if your house burns down, it's just going to take a different form. It might've been a nice bar and now it's a, it looks like a liquid puddle, but it'll firm up. <laughs> Are they marked? Here's, a, here's, a, here's another common or ignorant question. Are they marked with some sort of number or something toward, I know my bar has like a serial code on it or something. Serial numbered from a, a hallmark, like a Johnson Matthey, um, okay. or Horaeus, Valcambi, depending on whether it's a U.S. or European bar, um, but yeah, bars or coins, um, just keep it generic, keep it simple. That keeps the costs down. And um, yeah, I mean, th there there is within your, but if you use the vaulted program, you've got gold in Ottawa, Canada through the Royal Canadian Mint. You've got silver through HSBC in London. The only US entity that has that relationship with HSBC and can provide bars at a retail price structure that, reduces 70% of the wholesale costs of delivery. It's, it's, it's an amazing program. It's I an see. amazing, costs are crushed, accessibility is easy. You can start with virtually nothing. I, I you know, open an account, dink around with 50 bucks and, and see what you think. We did a thing called a vault plan where out of every payroll, if you wanna add 50 bucks or hundred bucks, thousand bucks, whatever, you just kind of routinely add to your, your, your gold position. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah. That's a great idea. Great idea. Why uh, this is, I don't mean to bring up competition, so I don't mean for it to come across this way. Why use vaulted instead of like E-Trade or whatever? Yeah. Well, um, in an E-Trade, you could own something like an exchange traded fund, which would give you like GLD and SLV are your gold exchange traded fund ticker symbols. You can buy them as you would buy a stock. Okay. The problem is they're not deliverable unless you're taking delivery of over $10 million with a product. So automatically, you know, you've, you, uh, you're, there's a, there's a distance there. Okay. That's really the biggest difference is, okay. is with our program, you have an allocated deliverable physical metal. And, I love and it. I love if you've it. only got a grand in the program, not enough for a coin or a bar, you can convert it to a smaller product. Maybe it's quarter ounce gold Eagles or half ounce gold Eagles and convert it for product that is deliverable versus, you know, your sort of chip of a kilo bar. You're not going to have that happen. Um, but great program. Okay. very good. Well, as soon as I sell Riderflex, our recruiting firm for several million dollars, <laughs> I'm going to call you and I'm definitely going to put some of that in gold and silver. I don't know how much, but uh, then, then I can be a, an official client. Of course, it sounds to me like I could get vaulted right now and just, put in a few thousand if I wanted to, which I did not know before we had this yeah, conversation. No, I mean, $10, just try it out and see what you think wow. about the functionality. It's a, it's a really good program. Um, 
gold, like real estate, is just another asset to to bring diversification to the mix. It's yes. not quite into the stock market, um, and you know it does very well during periods of of inflation and, and rising rates. The 1970s yeah. is a great example of that, and I think we are in that period where inflation is going to be sticky and rates are going to stay higher longer than most people like. Um, I think we've got a good three, five, maybe even ten years of gold outperforming, and um, you know 1900. I think we're getting ready to see a re generational repricing move above 2100. And, and, and I think you begin to see some real, real interesting activity. Does your volume go up when, when interest rates for homes are at, go high, do people move into gold faster and you're busier? Um, our volume increases when there's concerns. Think of gold as an insurance policy. I see. Okay. You know, if, if you've neglected having fire insurance, you certainly don't neglect it when there's a fire just over the hill. You're like, I got to talk to an agent. <laughs> right? So there's a sense of urgency uh, when the Russians invade Ukraine or when COVID uh, kicks in or when there's volatility in the stock market, you know, 2022, yeah, you see a huge interest in gold just because the Nasdaq's off a third, the Dow's off nine percent, the S and P's off nineteen. Investors are like, "Gosh, maybe I shouldn't have all my eggs in that basket." <laughs> so that's it. Really, is kind of a concern-driven asset. Um, very good. So very good. Well, McIlvaney.com. David, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate you sharing on the RiderFlex podcast. See, we covered a lot of ground. Um, hopefully it uh, <laughs> it was not intended to offend. Um, nah, I'm sure it won't. Good, good sure to be with you. I'm glad we had the opportunity for candor.